Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion has been appointed as an advisor to Premier Doug Ford. There are signs that a breakthrough is going to happen with the Plan B Brexit deal. And Rudy Giuliani stated that Trump did pursue a business deal to erect a tower in Moscow. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, well, with all the news uh, last week from the uh, Ford government about uh, tuition reductions and, uh, well, student loans and things of that nature, which, by the way, we'll get into later on the show, uh, this one kind of flew under the radar. But uh, it was announced uh, just uh, toward the end of last week that uh, Premier Doug Ford has now appointed former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion as a special advisor. Uh, yeah, uh, that Hazel, Hurricane Hazel, who was the mayor, of course, uh, in uh, Mississauga from 1978 to uh, 2014. Um, not quite sure exactly what she's going to do as a special advisor, but it's, uh, it's well, kind of an eye-raising thing. Uh, and you have to wonder about patronage appointments and so many other things that are being floated around as a result of this. Join us to talk about this. Christo Avalis, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in the history, of course, at the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Did this surprise you? I mean, uh, in a way it does. I mean, you, you think maybe Hazel had, had decided to, to exit the political game. You know, she had, she had retired. You know, she was no longer mayor after, you know, a, a multi-generational tenure at the Post in, you know, a fairly large community in our province. And, um, you know, so that's a bit surprising. You know, you don't see a 97, 98-year-olds entering the political game very often. But, I mean, she did endorse Ford, and that endorsement, I think, was was probably fairly significant to him. It might not have made the difference between his victory and not, but it was important because, you know, Hazel was seen as somebody who was somewhat maybe more of a liberal than a progressive conservative, had endorsed kind of the liberals in the last provincial election. So having somebody seen as kind of a centrist, somebody as a moderate, endorse Ford was, was a big political coup. And so it makes sense in a, in a way that Ford would, would try to bring her into his government, which is, you know, though very new, already quite unpopular with Ontarians um, and is facing a lot of scandals and is facing at least a decent amount of turnover within his kind of core staff. So it means, you know, he probably is looking for, for hires to be made. It's interesting, yeah, when you look at her background. And, and I always, uh, to your point, Christo, I always kind of looked at Hazel as kind of apolitical. Uh, she just kind of went with the, the flow, didn't she? I mean, depending on who was in charge at Queen's Park, she just said, well, we have to work with them. Uh, she well, obviously, yeah, she did have some relationships, obviously, with the the liberals, but uh, to the benefit of Mississauga, by the way, they got an awful lot of of, uh, of money flowing their way for a number of different projects like this. But my understanding is that she knew the Ford family fairly well too. Yeah, there's always a mixture here. You know, when you're talking about politics, there's the the, the reality of a mayor, as we know in our in our system, is that they 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 can be quite powerful people, but mayors are less powerful than premiers for a few reasons. One, they just don't command the same kind of population. And then two, there's the reality, as we've seen, that uh, ultimately the provinces can do whatever they want to the cities, and the cities can't very well do anything to stop them. We've seen that with the Toronto City Council uh, issue earlier or late, uh, late last year. But there's also the reality that um, you know, mayors are just kind of one person among many. So your ability to build relationships is paramount. And Hazel McCallion was uh, adept at doing that with liberal governments. And the Liberal Party is in power, in, in you know, more frequently federally than the Conservatives are. And while, you know, there was a long Conservative dynasty, um, you know, during uh, the early part of Hazel's 
mayoral tenure, um, you know, being able to work with the Liberal Party was quite important. But again, if you're looking at this in another sense, I mean, Mississauga is part of that general GTA area. Ford, you know, comes from the core area of Toronto, but he's but he's not, you know, from a downtown perspective. In some ways, you know, Etobicoke might see itself with similar concerns and issues and a kind of political culture uh, somewhere like Mississauga, maybe more than, say, somebody in the downtown core. So it makes sense that you know, they traveled in kind of similar political and social, maybe business circles. And so knowing one another in these political dynasty families is, is not at all surprising. But let's connect the dots here, if we could, for a second, because one of the other announcements that the uh, the Ford government made last week had to do with uh, a review of regional governments. Uh, Eighty-two different municipalities were uh, were singled out and said, "Look, we want to check this out." And for people that don't know the history, of course, the, the, the Harris government back in the nineteen nineties uh, kind of started the ball rolling with amalgamations and said, "Ah, oh, this is a much more efficient system. You'll save millions and millions of bucks." Uh, it didn't go well, uh, and an awful lot of cities complained about it, and there were cost overruns, and they just quietly kind of dropped it out. Are we going to see round two of this? You're going to see something, I think. Um, it, it, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, Ford didn't run on, 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 on any sort of big changes between municipal, municipal, provincial relations, but the kind of gauntlet was dropped in approaching it with Toronto. I think the reality there is that they picked Toronto first because I think part of it probably does have to do with Ford's personal grievances with that city council, but also... Um, you know, it was a good test balloon to see how people would respond. And people in Toronto were angry, but I don't know if the outrage went truly provincial. And so maybe there's a sense that um, people really, when push comes to shove, won't put up the extreme kind of pressure to resist his efforts to amalgamate. Um, this could be done for a variety of purposes. One of the arguments in Toronto, at least, um, to, to shrink the city council was that, you know, um, it made city councillors weaker and then therefore made developers stronger. And there's an, you know, a potential opportunity to go to other cities like you know, Ottawa, Hamilton, and even you know, smaller cities, mid-sized cities like Kingston and places like this, weaken their city councils, weaken their elected governance, and therefore empower the kind of developer class who, in the absence of regulation, will just be able to build quicker and, and, and easier. And maybe that's a good thing from a certain perspective, but from other people's it might be seen as troubling to the environment and to the existing population. So having someone like Hazel McCallion, who maybe supports those visions, but maybe if she doesn't, brings credibility just by having her name associated, mm. or maybe brings credibility because when you have to go talk to individual mayors and you have to go talk to individual city councillors, having Hazel call them up might be, might be a beneficial kind of political tool there. But then again, the problem raises is that you know, Hazel McCallion um, speaks her mind, um, Hazel McCallion probably doesn't need that $150,000. Hazel McCallion, um, you know, is, is retired and could probably go back to being retired. So I wonder if, if Ford takes a position that's against what she sees as her values and the interests of municipalities, will she play ball with him? And that's another question, right? Will she, will she still be a bit of a maverick? And, and that's an interesting uh, proposition, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if there's a lot of credibility to this. In other words, she's, I, I don't know if she's beloved, but I mean, everybody knows Hazel, and you know, everybody has an opinion on her, and she's with the mayor for the longest time, of course, at Mississauga. Uh, and she's a, she, she's a very ebullient personality, so you know, maybe she's going to be the, the front of this. I know they've, they've appointed a couple of bureaucrats to, to do some of the consultation about these potential amalgamations, but if there's a friendly face there, a, a well-known face, that might make... Uh, well, the, the medicine go down a little easier. No, no, certainly. Like with anything, like with, with, with when you're trying to approach a con controversial policy 
and maybe a policy that you and or your government uh, you know, have credibility issues on, it's incredibly important that you get someone from the affected kind of community to kind of be your spokesperson, even if it's in a kind of a, a frontman role. So, you know, governments will do this sometimes when they try to pass policies that are controversial with the vast majority of Indigenous people. They find a small group of Indigenous people who are willing to support them and then say, look, and then pretend that they speak for all Indigenous people. So here, cynically, if we want to go that way, you might say that Hazel McCallion is going to be used as a way to say, look, one of Ontario's greatest ever mayors support Doug Ford's vision uh, to, to kind of rein in municipal uh, extravagance. So why, so why listen to all these current mayors when the greatest mayor ever, um, you know, uh, it stands with uh, Premier Ford? And maybe that's the, the goal here. I, again, I wonder, though, does Hazel actually support his vision? Does she support it, but maybe not to the extent that Ford wishes she supported it. Do we even know what this is about? Again, we, 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 we really know nothing. Both you and I are assuming he's bringing her on to help with the municipal portfolio, but we actually have no confirmation about what her role actually will be. So it's, we're, we're all playing a bit of a guessing game. Yeah, they were very vague. They did talk about, uh, you know, that she would be uh, able to give advice to uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark and to the, prime, or to the Premier himself. But they didn't. I didn't get into exactly what issues they'd be talking about. Maybe it's amalgamation. It could be any number of other things. Because uh, clearly, Mr. Ford has made clear, I think, to a lot of us that he uh, he has an agenda, and there's some things that he wants to do. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, he got criticized for what he did with Toronto Council. You talked about that slashing that just in the middle of an election, and and basically eliminating two uh, regional chair jobs in the in the province. Uh, just before an election, uh, maybe he needs a, a kinder face to 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 be the front person for some of this stuff. Yeah, I would think so. And I think again, when you're gonna when you're gonna go into other communities, again, there's a, for lack of a better term, that people uh, have a kind of disdain for Toronto in a sense. There's a narrative that Toronto, you know, sucks in the province's resources. In many ways, it's the it's the opposite. But the but the reality is, is I think Ford could probably count on at least from his base of supporters, a kind of general disdain for downtown Toronto carrying him through on his attack on the city council, which could be cast as an attack on, like, the downtown elite, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if he's going to go more systematic and he's going to either push more forms of amalgamation or he's going to say, you know, I'm going to look at all city councils in this province and I'm going to shrink all city councils and town councils and, you know, country reeve councils, what have you, by 50% um, or, or more, then, then that's the reality, and I'm going to do that. And if your small town council has six seats, now it's going to have three. And like the, you can go suck an egg if you don't like it. But having Hazel McCallion there, as again, as, as somebody who is a, a former mayor, could again lend credibility to that, but, but I, I don't know if that would have the broad base of support. I mean, that's one of the arguments here. When, when people said Toronto City Council is too big, it's too bloated, the reality is, is that, you know, many of our small towns, if they had a council the size of, if they wanted a, a proportional council to Toronto, they would all be one-seat councils. And if they wanted as many seats of Toronto, you need a council of 100 or more people in some of these small towns to match the per capita rate of what Toronto City Council are. So if the logical extension of Ford's plan is, I want to do in Toronto, or do everywhere else what I did in Toronto, he's going to face severe backlash on that. 
It's interesting. I, I talked to a couple of the mayors uh, that are going to be in. Well, there's some of the ones that are listed here among these 82 municipalities, Christo. And and the consensus I got from from some of the conversations was they they seem to feel that, look, it, you know, they're going to come here. They're going to talk to us. There's going to be public consultation. We don't know how extensive that's going to be, but it has been promised. But once they see how efficient we are with our two-tier system, with our regional and local governments, they'll probably just back off and let us keep the status quo. And I said, I'm not so sure you can make that assumption. It seems to me as if he's pretty much predetermined that he's going to move in this direction. Well, I mean, we don't know what his predetermined goals are. I mean, I think the challenge here is that there's a mixture of pragmatism and ideology. Um, and, you know, one of the Ford attacks and one of the win attacks, they kind of ganged up on Andrea Horwath on this in the last week of the election. There was kind of a liberal conservative alliance where they said, well, the, the NDP will govern too ideologically. But the reality here is that part of Ford's attacks on municipalities is based in ideology. It's not necessarily fully based in efficiency. It's, you know, the amalgamation was supposed to be efficient, but it was really about attacking local governance, which was preventing Harris from enacting some of his broader reforms. And I think the same thing would happen here with Ford. So my concern, I guess, is if I was a mayor, is that, yes, you can demonstrate efficiency. Yes, you can demonstrate from your elected officials and from the community a resistance to any changes Ford might make. But at the end of the day, the, 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 the way our powers are structured in the Constitution is that Ford can do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. And it doesn't have to be based on any kind of if policy of efficiency or, or efficacy you know, contracting out doesn't actually save people money. It makes it enriches a small sliver of the owners, and it you know um, takes away good union jobs and leaves everyone with worse services. Now, the efficiency argument is you want to keep those good unionized public sector jobs, but the ideological argument is you want to have those jobs shunted off for investors. So the ideology and the pragmatism are in opposition there. So I'd be concerned if I'm a mayor of a community um, uh, because I don't know if Ford will be making decisions based on what's in the interests of, 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 of proper governance and more about what's in the interests of the people who help bankroll his campaign. And, and that's concerning to me. The Green Belt, for instance, what's going to happen there, you know? Well, and that, yeah, that's only one example where he just, you, know, you get the sense that he's just making arbitrary decisions and saying, no, I'm, I'm opposed to that because the previous government did do this and I, I'm, I'm going to tear it down. And, and you wonder what the, the long-range uh, ramifications of something like that are going to be. Uh, it, besides, this is all based on the premise. And, and uh, you know, we got that bill of goods back when Hamilton went through the amalgamation process some years ago, Christo, was, was that smaller is more efficient. And, and I don't know if you can make that general assumption uh, because there's always going to be this call for proper representation. And, hey, I want to talk to my counselor because I've got a problem here. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, there was a pushback there, I think, because of that. I know there's always going to be pushback against change, especially for people that are already in elected office. But but do they have to make the case, or can he just, like he did in Toronto, say, I'm the premier and I'm doing this? Too bad, so sad. Well, I think that there's, the, there's the, on the one hand, you know, Ford has demonstrated that you know, he can do a lot of these things. And ultimately, you know, he, he the courts found against him, and then they went with the one outstanding clause, and then the courts actually, in appeal, sided with him. So in a sense, he probably does have the legal powers to do at least some of what he's doing. And what he's demonstrated is if he doesn't have the powers under the courts, he'll use the notwithstanding clause to override those courts. So you might think as a city councillor or as a mayor of a, of, a, of a town that may be affected by a future Ford overture that, you know, the, I, I, there's nothing I can do. The reality is, is that you have to still resist. You have to still, 
you know, offer your vision, you still have to challenge the, 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 the premier because that's how, you know, you can affect polling potentially. If you're a popular local mayor, maybe somebody who has a similar ideological profile to Ford, um, yet you disagree with him on these core ideological matters as it, as it pertains to municipal rights and the importance of, of, of representative local governance, then you can, you can like, you know, cause damage to him. And the reality is with some of these things, is it's not just about Ford, it's about many of his uh, backbench MPPs who didn't all win by a whole lot of results. There was a lot of close seats between the, the Ontario NDP and the Conservatives in the last election. And so one of the things people have talked about is his policy to kind of scale back the minimum wage increase, which he actually did have a mandate for, um, is, very, is actually quite unpopular. And so in a lot of uh, uh, target ridings, um, MPPs are feeling the pressure. And it wouldn't surprise me here that in some of these towns, which may be affected by Ford's decision, he gets pressure from his backbenchers saying, look, this is unpopular here. The mayor doesn't like it. The city councillors don't like it. The people don't like it. The small businesses don't like it. You know, all of these people don't like it. And yeah, you might think an election is far, far away, but people's memories aren't as bad as we think when it, when it really comes to how their democracy is affected. So you need to slow your role. And I think that's the only way you can stop him, because as we know, through formal legal policy, he probably has the right of way. Is is this a, 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 a rural versus urban split? Because we saw this happen with a lot of the Harris policies. Uh, there was great division. Small town Ontario loved uh, downloading because essentially they don't have much in the way of social services. Uh, so they actually came out as winners. Larger communities, Hamilton, Toronto, Windsor, Ottawa, places like that, uh, were, were pretty ticked off at the Premier when he instituted these policies because it did put much uh, a much greater burden on, on local tax bases. Uh, but, uh, but Harris seemed comfortable with that because he figured my base is going to be the small towns, rural Ontario, and it worked for him for two elections. Yeah, I mean, that's partly part of it, right? If you want to talk about things like shrinking city councils and or uh, the, the, the downloading of services, amalgamations, things like that. I don't know if that'll affect I mean, maybe even if you're in a small town, maybe the amalgamations help you get services. Maybe, you know, three small towns in equal one small city, and therefore you can have newer services. So that is a kind of argument you might have, right? But I think with Ford, he has to be careful. One, Ontario is much less rural than it was even 20 years ago. Population's more urban. Ford does indeed kind of have a lock on, on rural support, it seems. But I think what's more important for him is suburban communities, and those communities do have significant services. They do have hospitals. They do have schools. They do have parks. They do have, you know, utilities. And he needs to be able to continue to kind of win those suburban areas if he wants to hold on to power, because he's going to continue to become further unpopular in the cities, my, 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 my feeling is. And, uh, you know, there's a risk there if he drops seats in, say, the northern part of, of Toronto proper, but he continues to pursue policies that make, you know, the suburban communities angry, it could really put him in trouble. I think, again, it depends how he approaches this. If he goes and he says, look, I want to attack public services, specifically he wants to you know, contract out public services and force municipalities to do that. Um, maybe, again, as you say, small towns with limited public services don't really feel anything, but medium-sized cities and above do. But if he wants to attack the structures of local governance and actually start saying to councils, look, you can't have a six-person town council anymore. You need a two-person town council because that's what you're uh, allotted to according to you know, the, the, the system we're going to use. Or we're going to take 20 towns and merge them into one town, and the amalgamation is so severe that you start eroding people's sense of community, then, then that will cross urban and rural boundaries. 
and create trouble. So I think how he approaches this is quite crucial if his goal is to make systematic political change, yet not anger his base, which, as you know, is in rural Ontario and suburban Ontario. He has to look at specific ways that he can he can target Ontario's biggest cities, but not their suburban commuting kind of like uh, enclaves. And that's going to be a challenge. It is. Uh, Crystal, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. Christo Avalos, of course, uh, social sciences from the U of T. Going to be an interesting year from Queen's Park, for sure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big problems, of course, uh, across the pond uh, with uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May. She is set to unveil her new plan to break Britain's Brexit deadlock. And it looks like the new plan is going to be a lot like the old plan, which got soundly defeated by Parliament last week. So I don't know where she's going on this, what the chances are. But let's ask Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroote School of Business at McCraft University here in town. Morning, Marvin. How are you today? I am fine, thank you. A lot better than they are in Britain these days. Well, yeah, this is going on and on, and it just seems as if they're going in circles here. I mean, uh, there's the political element to this. There's certainly the economic end to this, too. And and, and, uh, poor Theresa May doesn't seem to know which way to go. (laughs) Well, fair enough. So let's let's just take you back. A couple of years ago, Britain had this wonderful referendum. 52 to 48, 52% of people voted to leave the European Union. 48% re- voted to stay. David Cameron, who was pre- prime minister at the time, then resigned, said clearly I'm the wrong person to lead this. Theresa May emerged, even though she had campaigned for the stay side. She said, okay, I'll be prime minister and I'll help lead you out. Uh, they evoked the magic clause that begins a countdown clock, and that clock expires on March 29th of this year, 2019, at which time Britain is supposed to, quote, leave the European Union. Now, the whole problem here is how do you leave the European Union? How do you unscramble the egg? So Theresa May has spent the better part of a year, year and a half, negotiating with the European Union terms of an exit, Uh, What she was trying to look for, I'm going to call, is a soft exit in which Britain leaves some of the more controversial aspects of the European Union, at least controversial to Britain, things like control of their borders and, and taking in refugees, but would remain for the most part part of the economic ties to the European Union. So we'd still free trade, we still wouldn't have tariffs, we'd still be able to get access to all those wonderful European markets. We're just going to take control of those things that bother people at home. Uh, in making this negotiation, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, and others in the Europe said, you know, we're not going to make this too easy for you because you could become a precedent if one person gets upset with a small part of the European Union, they want to threaten to leave but stay in everything else. In fact, Angela Merkel's first uh, strategy here was that you have to leave everything, sit out for a little while, and then we may let you back into a couple of things. Anyway, through all of that, Theresa May was finally able to get a deal and say, okay, good, let me take this to Parliament and get it ratified. Well, as you noted, a week ago it was shot down 202 for, 436 against, resoundly defeated. Um, she then, two days later, had, or excuse me, a day later, had a vote of non-confidence in her government. That she survived, so oddly enough, the people who didn't like her plan still believe in her and what she's trying to do, and she was then told she needed to bring a new plan forward today. Now, there's been no time to negotiate anything significantly different than the old plan. So you're absolutely right. I suspect that what we're going to see today is a near-carbon copy of the plan from last week, although maybe a few things are dropped or added. Um, It's not clear at all to me, as you pointed out, whether any of this is going to become acceptable to the British Parliament. 
So then, you know, really this gets us into a whole set of scenarios about where this may go. Well, and, you know, there's, there's one element of it, Marvin, about whether or not the British Parliament's going to accept any of the things that she may present today. Uh, we're not sure if the EU is going to accept them because they've been pretty steadfast and said, we're not changing. That was the deal. You guys, I don't want any I's undotted or T's uncrossed. This is it. This is it. Take it or leave it. And now she's trying to find some wiggle room here, and I'm not so sure they want to give it to her. Right. Well, first, let's talk about a plan B, if you will, from the European Union standpoint. Plan A is the deal that we negotiated with you. We gave you some concessions. We weren't completely happy with them, but okay, that's the deal you've got. Now, if you don't want that deal, we have a simple plan B for you. Just leave. Just go. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Just go. What we call the, you know, the absolute uh, unplanned exit. Just go. Uh, and then we can talk later about having you come back into some things. Now, that scenario scares a lot of people because uh, there are good reasons to keep economic ties to Britain as well. Britain has benefited from the European Union with a number of financial companies setting up their head offices in England, but as a way to enter the whole EU. If if England is out 100% from the EU, then why are they in London? They're going to have to pack up and move and go to Frankfurt or go to Paris or some other place. Uh, it could be just a, a bedlam in, in the next few months and very devastating to the English economy. From her standpoint, from her standpoint, there are a couple of different plan Bs. One is to say, you know what, I know we were going to leave on March 29th, but Europe, we're going to ask for an extension. We're going to need a one-year extension and leave March 29th of 2020. That would at least buy her some time to try to negotiate something different. Uh, another plan B, if you will, is to say, and she's actually said this out loud, if, if the choice is for Britain to leave fully, then I'm voting to stay. And, and conceivably, there, we could see another referendum in England. Probably, again, it would be very tight, uh, probably 52-48 the other way to stay. That would upset many citizens of England. Um, but, you know, that's another possibility. She says, look, if you want me to, to take us out completely without any connections, I, I can't do that. It's not healthy for the economy. Therefore, I, I, I don't want to. I'm going to stay now. And everything in between that, Bill, is on the table. Interestingly, uh, when you look at, at, at what even the people that, that are pulling for the Brexit here are, are trying to have included in this deal, this exit deal, uh, it, th there's an awful lot of them, Marvin, that do seem to want to maintain an awful lot of the economic ties that, that currently exist there, which I, I think really underscores what a lot of people were surmising back in the days of the uh, the referendum that uh, it was a lot more about immigration than it was about economic policy. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, Bill. Um, you know, we have to remember the time. Every vote is always in the context of its time. And at that time, there were just thousands and thousands of refugees streaming out of Africa, streaming out of the Middle East, fighting against all hope to get across the Mediterranean. We remember the way the boats were landing in, in Italy and in Greece and in other places, refugee camps. Clearly, those economies in southern Europe couldn't absorb all the immigrants, so the EU said, okay, we're going to have to pass them around a little bit, folks. So here, England, here's your quota. You've got to take 50,000 or 100,000. And that's when this whole thing started to go south. People in England said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We feel we have enough diversity. We've got to pick up enough refugees. We don't want them. How dare you tell us what to do, Brussels? And that's when this whole thing began of saying we want to control our borders, control our policies. But no one had ever actually said, I'm upset with the free movement of people or the way a, a person in Britain can get a job in England, or excuse me, in England, in Germany, without any, uh, any paperwork. No one seemed to complain about those things. No one complained about the trade. So that seems to be this 
really the kind of deal she tried to put together, but the deal that the House um, uh, defeated. Uh, to be candid again, Bill, there's another challenge, and that's uh, the difference between Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland. Northern I was going to ask you about that, because a lot of people, I think, are confused by that. It, I think what's called is the backstop. And and I guess it, it, it's essentially the motivation for this, Marvin, is that uh, one of them is in, one of them's out if, yeah. if Brexit goes on. Right. So if, if Britain leaves, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, what we might also call Southern Ireland, is still part of the European Union. Uh, you know, we had a, a lot of years, 50 years of, of torment in Ireland between the South and the North, Catholic and Protestant violence. We all remember the bombings in the 70s and 80s. And we've now got a new era of peace. But part of that is because there's now a more porous border between the North and the South. There's no artificial separation. The fear, of course, is that if England or Great Britain leaves, that that border will cease to be porous. Suddenly you're going to have a checkpoint. Your Irish passport won't automatically get you into uh, into Northern Ireland and thus into Great Britain. And so Ireland has said, look, whatever you do, make sure that this border stays as porous as possible. Uh, by the way, there's another little challenge, regional challenge. That's called Scotland. Scotland had a referendum a few years ago to leave the United Kingdom. That was lost, but it was lost in part because there was no guarantee made to Scotland that if you leave the United Kingdom, you would automatically get European Union membership status. And in Scotland, uh, part of their success or their improvement in their economy is due to trading with the European Union. So grudgingly, they said, okay, we'll stay with the United Kingdom because that still gives us access to the European Union. Well, if, if... Britain is going to leave wholeheartedly uh, the European Union. Suddenly Scotland, dragged along with it, doesn't get any access at all. What the hell are we staying here for? So you can see a nationalism movement in Scotland to once again think about separating, because now an independent Scotland might be able to get back to the European Union. It's a very difficult thing for Theresa May to steer through. Well, and, and there's talk now, of course, of uh, the, the Scottish Prime Minister Sturgeon uh, actually t- threatening another referendum, saying yep. if you guys are out, we don't want to play ball with you anymore. Right. We want, we want into the European Union. I mean, again, I think this is quite fascinating. From Scotland's mindset, it is more important to be part of the European Union than the United Kingdom. Uh, and so for them, unless, unless this is a minor leave, so again, think of what Theresa May was trying to do, sort of a minor leave. We're in the European Union for all the good economic reasons, but we're outside of it, control our immigration. That is more or less the kind of deal she negotiated with the European Union. That was acceptable to Scotland, and it was also acceptable to Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland because it kept the borders open. It, you know, it works on many levels. It just doesn't seem to work with the hardliners. Um, and so, oddly enough, also last week when she this whole idea was defeated, it was defeated in a coalition between, get this bill, those people who wanted to stay in the European Union and those people who wanted to leave. The people who wanted to stay said, this goes too far. We don't want to go this far away from the European Union. And, of course, the people who want to leave says this doesn't go far enough. So the question is, will any sober second thinking happen a week later? As if that isn't complicated enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's the, the political element of what's going on within the U.K. itself. And, of course, that uh, being Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, who would dearly love to see the government fall, uh, then you've got, uh, I guess, elements even within the Conservative Party over there, Marvin, uh, like Boris Johnson, for one, 
uh, that would love to see Theresa May fall. Now, that's not going to happen because she did survive in December uh, a, a confidence vote within her own party, so they can't go after her again for another year. But that doesn't mean she can't resign if, if they put enough pressure on her. She's got that hanging over her head. Yeah, exactly. So Corbyn has said that he's going to start uh, filing non-confidence votes on almost a weekly basis because he feels this government is shattering, and at some point those people propping up Theresa May may give in, and that could trigger an election. Now, Corbyn's um, party that he's representing here is a stay party. They want to stay in the European Union. They've actually tried to get Jeremy Corbyn to come out and say, uh, rather than advocating for an election, advocate for another referendum, they think that the people who might vote to stay might then ultimately reward Jeremy with a, a, a vote in the next popular election. He's been reluctant to do this to date, but as this thing starts to spin more and more out of control, he may become an advocate for that side. Thus again, if Theresa May comes back and says, you know, I've changed my position now, if we can't get this soft exit, then I think we should stay as well. Now what does that do to him? So you've got people trying to stake out grounds for political purposes, uh, but you've also got what's good for the country, and that's what's making this uh, circles within circles. Which is why the original House of Cards was actually about the UK parliamentary system and not about the American. Exactly. Uh, this is it's it's really bizarre. It the twists and turns almost on a daily basis here are, are pretty hard to keep track of. It is, and and so you mentioned some of the players, Boris Johnson, who I think sees himself as prime ministerial material, would probably love to replace uh, Theresa May, uh, but he he actually resigned his cabinet post over this because it wasn't going in the direction that he wanted it to, uh, and and I I you know, I don't know what clears the air. Would a referendum clear the air? Maybe if it went 65-35, but if it was razor-thin, 52 to stay, 48 to leave, don't know how much clarity that brings. Would a national election bring clarity? Uh, Theresa May actually tried this a couple years. She called a snap election saying, I need a majority to go forward, and she was rewarded with a minority. Her whole government survives because a group of people from, yes, you guessed it, Northern Ireland who are propping her up. Uh, they voted against her proposal last week, but supported her in the confidence vote. They think she's the person to negotiate this labyrinth, this maze. It, it is complicated. And one more quick thing, Bill. I have been absolutely stunned that the North American stock markets have been ignoring this story. The potential economic turbulence is huge here, uh, both in terms of the European Union and in England. England's still one of the top five economies in the world when you see that economy in some turmoil. But we on this side of the pond have been yawning. The markets have done okay. They've been up a little bit. Uh, oil has gone up a little bit. The dollar is up a little bit. It, it, it's almost as if we, we think she's going to magically find a way forward when I'm not convinced that's going to be that easy at all. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donald Trump was not back in the USSR, except when he was. Because, uh, well, right from the beginning of this whole thing with the with the Trump Tower and what was going on during the election campaign a couple of years ago, uh, Trump has steadfastly said that he had no dealings with Russia, no business deals at all. Well, Rudy Giuliani, who is uh, Trump's personal lawyer now, uh, was on Meet the Press uh, yesterday morning, and uh, he said that uh, now he is uh, making the admission that uh, that Trump uh, actually pursued the deal, the Tower Moscow deal, right through 2016, uh, which is a far different story. But he also said, what's the big deal? 
Well, what is the big deal? Let's ask uh, Elliot Tepper, a professor emeritus of political science at Carleton University. Elliot, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, good morning, Bill. You know, Rudy Giuliani is a guy with a, a stellar reputation. He was a, a very, very successful district attorney, of course. Uh, uh, you know, he uh, nailed a whole bunch of mob bosses and crime figures in New York City. Uh, had a rather well, tenuous time as as mayor of New York, I guess, but uh, a couple of terms there. He he just doesn't seem to to be on the ball with a lot of this stuff. Every time he seems to go on national TV, he muddies the water instead of clarifying anything. Well, uh, he's given a subsequent interview with the New York Times, Bill, where he he quotes he, he quotes Donald Trump as saying. The negotiations, I don't have the exact quote here, but uh, the negotiations with Russia continued till the day I was elected, which is a totally different story than has been told even during the interview uh, with me on Meet the Press with, with Todd and others. So it's um, two things. One is it's a very startling statement in and of itself. He speaks for the president, and if he says that's what the president said, I you know, short of Donald Trump saying it, and personally, you know, that's pretty definitive. But also, why is he doing this? And there's two theories on that. One is, he just can't help himself. I mean, he just, he just goes on and on and on. The other is, he knows things. He's a lawyer. He's representing a client. Things are about to come out about that client. So it's better to get it out ahead of the news and uh, be, be on top of the news cycle. So when it does come out, whatever that story might be, in this case, the story about how long the negotiations were going on, in sharp contradiction to what was being said publicly at the time, that, uh, you know, that would basically help squash the story. <clears throat> so as to the question of, so what's the big deal? Uh, Giuliani asked rather rhetorically yesterday on Meet the Press, uh, it's not just the fact that, yeah, he lied to the American people about this. Yes, he was having dealings with Russia, and we don't know how extensive those were, whether it was the Russian government or it was Russian investors, whatever the case might be. But there are rules against that sort of thing when you're running for president, aren't there? Well, yeah. this gets you into a very technical area of rules against what exactly? Uh, being nice to Russia? Uh, hiding it's, it's, you know, normally it isn't the crime, it's the cover-up. Mm-hmm. Covering up the fact that you were saying many things that Russia wanted to hear, at the same time negotiating quietly behind the scenes for some business deal, and then denying that you were doing that, well, is there, is there a crime there? I don't know, but there's a political issue there, that's for sure. Well, there's that element, and, and I guess that comes down to credibility, and, and, and it, it, what it does is, I guess, in many people's minds, Elliot, it, it fuels this fire that, you know, that there was collusion going on, that, uh, that Trump was, was playing footsie with Russian officials, maybe with Russian government officials at the same time, trying to curry favor for this deal, uh, while at the same time, uh, essentially, uh, aping their, their foreign policy at just about every turn. Yes, and uh, Russia really, for example, re- Russia really wants out of sanctions. If there's a goal for Russia in supporting Trump, which we know, you know, factually seems to be the case, according to the American intelligence agencies, 17 of them, uh, they did intervene in the election, and they did so quite massively in sophisticated techniques, active measures to elect Donald Trump. Why would they do that? Well, uh, it didn't cost them a whole lot of money, and they got a lot of return. But what they wanted out of this was, was Donald Trump uh, to lift the sanctions, which are biting the economy of Russia, which is much smaller than people normally think. One tiny aspect 
of all of this that that uh, people can now look back on. Donald Trump, during the campaign, held a news conference, and he he picked out an obscure non-reporter from the back of the room. Uh, her name was Maria Putina, <laughs> and she's now been convicted of being a Russian asset, an intelligence agent uh, in America. He, he, he picked out a non-journalist, uh, clearly not randomly, to say, yes, what is your question? Sir, what do you think about sanctions? Do I think they should be lifted? So there's a whole pattern here. What about NATO? Oh, I'm against it. So whatever Russia uh, has as a foreign policy goal, that did seem to dovetail with what Donald Trump did during the campaign itself, and now we know that he was deeply involved, apparently, in negotiating for financial gain, and did that affect his stance and, therefore, America? So that's out there, and, and as you say, we're, we're starting to hear rumors now that uh, that the Mueller report, if not imminent, is is probably closer to being finished than than not being finished at this stage. But again, we still don't know the answer. But amazingly, we did hear from somebody in the Mueller camp uh, to do with yeah. another accusation, which I think raised an awful lot of eyebrows. Uh, I, I'm not. I, I don't know if I want to characterize it as saying they came to Trump's defense, uh, but uh, they denied this br- the, the the BuzzFeed story from last week. Right. The, the story, for those who haven't followed everything like you and I do day to day, was a, a fairly well-known source, BuzzFeed, which has a reliable track record in other areas, came out with this astonishing report that uh, Donald Trump specifically told Cohen, uh, his fixer, to lie before Congress, and that in turn would be a, a crime, and therefore you're into impeachment territory. And it was quite the stir for 24 hours or two news cycles saying, you know, if that's true, everybody said, then we are now going to start investigating possible impeachment. And then, as you suggested, the rare, I mean, unprecedented statement by the Mueller camp, this is the tightest, tightest part of anything in Washington. I mean, nothing comes out of that camp. They called, they have a a spokesperson who called everybody in and said, look, what you just have heard through BuzzFeed is not accurate. So, therefore, Cohen was not directed to lie. Uh, to Congress about uh, about the Trump campaign. So this was in itself, this became a news story. Uh, and BuzzFeed, by the way, is standing behind their statement. And they're saying two things. One, we still think it's true. And yes, others are now speculating. Uh, well, maybe it wasn't true that the source was the Mueller investigation. That's why Mueller had to react. I mean, there were, there were statements, you know, what BuzzFeed said is they got it out of the Mueller people. And Mueller said, "Not, not so." Well, maybe they didn't get it out of Mueller. Maybe they got it out of the, out of the court systems in in New York State. So, this will not. This story is still going on. But the main story there is, there was a sudden flurry that yes, we've got the smoking gun. No, we don't have the smoking gun. Well, and and therein lies, I, I guess, some of the speculation that's come out of this. And 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 you're right. I mean, because you know, there's a couple of uh, parallel investigations: the Mueller investigation, but also the one that's going on in the Southern District of New York. Uh, and and they're the ones that actually laid the charges against Cohen. And we understand now that they've got hundreds and hundreds of pages of uh, of uh, of text messages uh, that he has sent over and received over the years. Right. Uh, so now the speculation is, well, maybe it's the Southern District that uh, that is, is leaking this story as opposed to Mueller. But, I mean, we, we're, I don't know if we're ever going to get clarity on that. I don't know, but one tiny, again, side detail is right now the uh, the new Attorney General uh, designated is going to go in hearings, uh, a fellow named Barr, 
And he has been, oh, yes, Bob's my friend, and he's a straight shooter, and I will protect the investigation. But what hasn't been uh, brought fairly clear to the this hasn't come out much, he, once he's confirmed, will have not only control over the Mueller investigation, but also the federal aspects of what's going on in the New York court system. So in a worst-case scenario, he could, and this is, as I say, speculation and worst-case scenario, he could not only affect what gets reported out of the Mueller report, he has said, you know, that report comes to me, and I will tell everybody else what's in it. It's not going to be released. But he also could shut down a lot of those court cases there. Uh, the FBI, by the way, meanwhile, continues, and there's, there's state cases. So there will be investigations continuing, but as a result of this BuzzFeed um, flare-up, there's not going to be impeachment uh, proceedings based on what was reported by BuzzFeed. Just on that point, Elliot, I think there's a, a distinction to be made here because I know a lot of people are looking at this, and I think Giuliani was hinting at that yesterday on Meet the Press. Is look at this is this is not indictable. This is not felonious activity, uh, but the bar is not that high when it comes to impeachment, is it? Well, it's it's a different bar. It's a yeah, not that bar. The um, high crimes and treason, high crimes and misdemeanors, is the constitutional. Uh, situation, but this is ultimately political, and we have to keep in mind that all the House has now come under democratic control, and they can lead investigations. They've got subpoena power. They're going to be bringing Cohen before them. Uh, they don't control the Senate. So what the, the process is: the bill of impeachment is in the House. That is the bill of particulars. Here are the crimes under the Constitution. Now we send it to the Senate to basically try this and convict. If convicted in the Senate, then and only then is the president removed from power. The Republicans not only control the Senate, it takes 67 votes uh, to, to have that majority there, that type of majority, supermajority there, to do the convicting. And that's at the moment, unless something very dramatic comes out, that's an impossibility. So it's a moot point, really. I mean, even if the Democrats in the House decide, okay, there's enough evidence here that we're going to go through with this, uh, it, it dies as soon as it goes to the Senate. Not unlike the Bill Clinton uh, impeachment yes. process from uh, some years but, ago. But remember that Nixon did have to resign because the Republican elders went to him privately and said, sir, we've got, you can't survive this. So uh, we're delivering the message that before we have to vote on it, you, you're going to lose that vote. And he did resign accordingly. So and it will take something very specific uh, to have an impeachment process that goes through all the way. And we don't know what Mueller has. We don't know what all those other courts have. We should probably go back for a moment to, to what's leading to all this discussion, which is the BuzzFeed report and, and Cohen's testimony. What's going on out of a lot of the conversation is that there were at least two separate efforts by the Trump campaign to suppress materials during the campaign that could have affected his electoral prospects. And, and it turns out Cohen, the lawyer, the fixer, was involved in each. The, Cohen is now, this is so unbelievable, Cohen is, is going to jail in part because of campaign violations, because of the hush money that was paid to the porn star and others, this was considered uh, <laughs> uh, a, a contribution to the campaign that wasn't acknowledged because it turns out everybody's now admitting Trump has said, oh, yeah, I paid the money, <laughs> but it didn't come out of the campaign funds. In any event, 
what we know is there was a very grave effort to cover up things during the campaign that might have hurt the campaign itself. And the second is what you and I have now been discussing, the, the ongoing dealings during the campaign between the Trump organization and Donald Trump, uh, the candidate. So there's two efforts to suppress information vital to, potentially vital to how people chose to vote, and Cohen's in the middle of them. And he's going to sing uh, in just a few days, I guess, in early February. He, he appears before this congressional committee. Uh, and that, that's going to be rather interesting to see just how he, uh, how, well, first of all, how he's being handled by the people that are going to do the the questioning, but at the same time, how much he's actually going to tell us, because I think both Correct. his lawyer uh, and Cohen, well, Cohen hasn't made too many public statements on this, have said that they don't want to tread too heavily on, on the Mueller investigation, so there's a lot of stuff that he may just say, I can't answer that now. That's correct, and, and Lanny Davis is a very cagey, his yeah, person yeah. is a very cagey person, <laughs> cagey lawyer, good lawyer from what I can tell. He also was connected to the Clintons at one point. So we have a situation where all the noise that we've been hearing for a very long time, that noise is likely to continue, and as of today, there's lots of smoke, but there's no smoking gun. We don't have definitive evidence one way or another in regard to the ongoing saga of Donald Trump, the presidential candidate and now president. If you're a betting man, Elliot, <laughs> uh, I mean, Carr is going to be appointed attorney general. I mean, yeah, that's a given because right. of the, the Republicans control the, uh, the Senate and, and they're on that committee. Uh, are we ever going to hear what's in this report, or is it? Are we just going to get his version of it with you know redacted sections, etc., and things that uh, well national security? I mean, that's a great excuse to to take whole sections of testimony out and say no, you can't allow that. You ask me if to what degree should we all have faith and trust in Barr? Yeah, and there's reason to be concerned because he has notoriously and famously not long ago wrote a 19-page memo which in essence said the president has great leeway in executive power and those investigating, investigating the president have severe limitations on what they can investigate and how they do it. So that raises a lot of red flags as to truly how um, nonpartisan he will be. The president wants somebody as attorney general to defend him. And that's not actually the technical role of the attorney general. It's an autonomous agency. But there's a lot of concern. I don't know how justified, but a lot of concern that basically he campaigned for the office. He's getting the office. And what is he going to do once he's confirmed? Well, obviously serve as another acolyte, not unlike what Matt Whitaker, who's the uh, acting AG, is doing right now. Well, that's unknown. He says, I'm... I'm independent, and anybody who knows me knows I'm independent, and I will defend Mueller. But again, he can say anything he wants up until his confirmation. Once he's confirmed, he can do anything within the law that he wishes. But you need to read between the lines. I mean, when Carr was uh, was uh, t- testifying the other day there during the questioning, uh, you're right. He was, you know, Bob's my buddy. Bob, I got great respect for Bob, and you know, I'm going to make sure that he finishes that report. But but he did not say he'd release it. He, I mean, he may let him finish the report. It may never see the light of day. Well, he said within the constraints, I will release it with under the parameters and all. By the way, I I didn't although I watched a lot of the t- testimony. Uh, it was very interesting. Uh, his views on Roe v. Wade apparently didn't come up prominently, and that's going to be an ongoing issue uh, once he's confirmed. So there's there's many aspects to this nominee that possibly could raise red flags for people. And meanwhile, we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's very, very ill, and it looks it's not at all impossible that Donald Trump will be able to appoint yet another Supreme Court justice, 
and the Judiciary Committee won't be able to block it, uh, although questions can be raised, so that uh, the Supreme Court can tilt ever further to the uh, conservative side of the spectrum. Yeah, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, well, it's funny, uh, the other day on uh, MSNBC they were saying that she's just recovering. It's a major surgery and she's going to be, she'll be back, but she's, but she's not back. And, and, and there was, I think, a great deal of concern uh, that, uh, that she may not get back. And, and uh, you're hearing, you know, the stuff from both sides right now as to which way this is going to go, but that would be a huge, huge shift on the, on the Supreme Court. Yes, and, and for, you know, decades. So the, uh, as, as you and I have discussed over a long period of time, don't just look at the circus, look at the <laughs> sausage factory. That is, don't just caught up, get caught up in the day-to-day-to-day drama around Trump, as, as fascinating as it is. Look where policy uh, is being made and how it's changing America. And policy is being made up until uh, very recently by a, a 100% Republican control of all lovers of government, and now increasingly over the Supreme Court as well, uh, and that policy will have lasting effects. Whether you like those effects or not is, of course, up, up to you, but or up to the American pub- public. But America is being shifted to the right. It's being shifted. The, the power balance in terms of corporation power versus the public's right to know is being shifted. Again, if what you think about that or what people think about that that's a ballot box issue, box issue. But America is being profoundly changed, and there's no sign that's going to stop under Barr or Trump. And uh, even if there were changes uh, from a political standpoint in the next general election, uh, it's, it's trying to like turn the, a sea-going vessel around. It doesn't happen that quickly. No, and, and some of this can go back and forth, which is very harmful for the confidence of the business community and the confidence of people who are concerned about deregulation. What's it doing to your water? What's it doing to your air? What's it doing to food inspections? What's it? The, the power of uh, people, many Republicans voted for deregulation. Those deregulations can be reversed if the Democrats come to power, but then if you have every eight years a cycle of more, less, more, less, more, less, this is not a recipe for long-term stability of confidence either for the business community, the corporate community, or the you know people who have to uh, to put up with what happens. So, um, the Koch brothers apparently are very unhappy with Trump, but very happy with the with the sausage factory. You know, the deregulation that's coming out is working to their effect and so forth. This is American politics, and the fascination with what happens to Trump is obscuring a lot of what's happening to change America. Elliot Tepper, always a pleasure, Elliot. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.